Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just as I was in the middle of paying my bill, I saw, I think it must have been about five people enter the hotel lobby. They looked as if they were on a mission and... Uh, this summoned me with the words, uh, Mr. Pelham. Nicholas Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. In July 2019, he received a rare journalist's visa to visit Iran. But on the day he was due to fly home, he was detained. And <laughs> they were on a mission, and uh, they handed me a sheet of paper in Farsi, and to this day I don't know exactly what it said, but what they said it said was that uh, a judge had given them authority to question me for up to 48 hours. And I stayed on in Tehran for seven more weeks than I'd initially intended to do. Nicholas Pelham's account of his time trapped in Tehran is on the cover of 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. And in this podcast, The Economist asks... He tells us his extraordinary story. So I got to Iran on a press visa. I'd been waiting for a visa for three years. Previous applications had seemed to disappear in, into the ether. It came through at a rather peculiar time because it was a period of, sort of heightened tensions, particularly actually between uh, Britain and Iran. There'd been a seizure by Britain of one of Iran's largest oil tankers, and that clearly sort of seemed a very strange time to, to be given a visa. Um, normally on previous occasions, I'd either kind of gone in with a large press pack to cover elections or with a team from The Economist. And this time I was going in alone. When I got to a hotel, which is normally kind of full of journalists, it was almost entirely empty. I did feel sort of, yeah, more alone than, than I had on, on previous trips. Let's get some context here. How common is detention of visiting journalists in Iran. And did you think about that as a, as a risk, given that there was heightened tension at the time of your reporting trip? I had taken a few precautions before leaving. I'd sort of double-checked with the embassy about, you know, whether this was a wise thing to do. And there were people there who I thought would, you know, tell me honestly if they thought there was a concern. I checked with other people who I knew were kind of close to the regime in, in London, and they had assured me that, yeah, they had assurances um, that nothing nothing would happen. But I think that's how a lot of us do this job, no? We, we, we step into the unknown and we hope that we're going to come back with something which, by, by doing that, which nobody else is going to have. If you didn't take any risks in this job, particularly sort of reporting in the Middle East, I don't think you could do it properly. So there is a kind of calculated risk. And yes, this is a regime which at the best of times feels paranoid, feels deeply suspicious about the intentions of the outside world, suspects that all journalists are really spies. And we're very soft targets. And in the past, you know, journalists have been detained. How had your visit gone until that day and how had you found the mood and how open had your interviewees been with you? I sort of presented a very ambitious list of the people I wanted to see before I arrived. Actually, I've done this in consultation with people in London who, you know, sort of intermediaries with, 
with the authorities, um, had been told that yeah, I should expect that at least some of them to come through, but was surprised that um, yeah, that actually none of the requests that I've submitted materialised. So the authorities not, not were, outright they, hostility, just not being helpful. Initially, they were they were quite helpful. They gave me this press accreditation. You're given a, a letter from uh, the Ministry of Ayrshire, the sort of Islamic guidance, saying that you're approved to work as a journalist. And so, if you do get stopped by kind of plainclothes police, this is kind of normally a it, it acts as a permit to to cover Iran. Iran is pretty much unique in countries that that I cover and that it's it not only provides a minder who is supposed to be with you sort of 24 hours a day and sort of follow your every movement, but you have to pay for the privilege um, that uh, the minder acts as a, a translator. And it's quite a hefty bill that sort of $250 a day that they charge you for the privilege of, of being minded full time. And this is a minder who isn't just there to make sure that you don't slip up, but anybody you talk to doesn't slip either. They carry a, a, a microphone with them or they record conversations on their mobile phone and they clearly identify themselves and they make it known to any interlocutor that they're sort of vetting conversations. And when did you first sense that that something was wrong? I mean, talk us through the initial moment of your arrest, I suppose, if we could call it that. They handed me a sheet of paper in Farsi and what they said it said was that uh, a judge had, had given them authority to questioned me for up to 48 hours. They then suggested that they could do this in the hotel or it might just be a formality and they could get it all over and done with in time for me to uh, catch my flight, which was sort of three hours away, provided that I accompanied them in their car. Um, They sat me down, first of all, went through all my uh, belongings, asked for my phones, my laptop, um, went through my notebooks. And at that point, I sort of separated from my belongings. They went in uh, one car. I went in uh, another car. We sped down to um, the airport, which is kind of, yeah, it's 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 quite a way out of town. And it was long enough for them to sort of ask me questions then. They're writing down everything that I said, asking me about sort of my uh, where I'd been a correspondent, what I, my intentions were in Iran, what I'd been doing in Iran. I'm sure they knew exactly what I was doing in Iran. Um, but they sort of wanted to go through day by day who I'd met, what I'd seen, who I'd spoken to, what they said. And they got through you know, pretty much every day by the time we got to the airport. Um, I was reunited with my belongings. I thought, great, you know, maybe they really are going to take me onto the plane. There's just enough time to catch it. But uh, we went through the x-ray machines. I thought we were going to head towards the uh, departure lounge. But uh, no, we sort of went upstairs to a, a back room, which had a, the walls were of paneled glass. So it had a sort of 270-degree view of the airport. And uh, there I was introduced to a man who was called the doctor, who turned out to be my uh, sort of chief interrogator for the next two and a half weeks. And what was going through your mind at that moment? It's a very strange process. Each individual move in itself is not hugely alarming. It's the kind of the sum of the experience is more is more intense than each individual sort of change in, in the script or your condition. And it's almost so incremental that the alarm is greater when you look back on it than, when, than, than in the moment. You're dealing with you know, each individual sort of change, you know, the introduction of people you hadn't expected to see with the line of questioning you hadn't expected. And I suppose they always leave a sort of window of hope so that you think, actually, you know, this is, this is going to turn out all right. It's not going to be... Don't worry, this is, yeah, this is a hiccup and it's all going to be sorted out. And 
that kind of sense of it's going to be a hiccup and it's all going to be sorted out actually goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you know, even at the, the the bleakest moments, you think, yeah, this is okay. You find a, you know, you rationalise kind of why this is not only bearable, but that's something, you know, the experience itself is valuable. What did he want to know from you? Initially, they wanted access to my kit. Yeah, I tried to insist that my thumbprint was what I used to, to unlock my phone. And he said, no, I need the code. And we kind of went through this rigmarole of me denying that I needed a code. And he made it clear that if I uh, didn't cooperate, my situation was going to change dramatically. He said, you have one more chance. And um, it, I kind of buckled, I think, quite easily under pressure. So they had access to my phone some, and my laptop. And yeah, for the rest of my time in Tehran, I never, I never saw them again. After that, it seemed to come to an abrupt end, and I thought, at one moment, gosh, that's easy. You know, they're going to take me onto the, they're going to take me onto the flight, and yeah, it's all over. I'm you mad. weren't giving up on getting that flight, were you? Um, I don't. You can't afford to give up, no. Um, <laughs> we we headed out. I thought in the direction of the departure lounge, but again, just as we were getting to towards it, we veered in the opposite direction and out onto the car park where a slightly more disheveled car, a more battered car was was waiting, so I felt I'd been downgraded and uh, was put into the car and uh, shown a blindfold and we said, we're going to put this on you and so I was sort of blindfolded and um, we sped off out of the airport. It was, yeah, clear I think by this stage I was not going to catch the flight. I was in between two people sitting either side of me in the back seat. They drove off at speed, a pretty fast speed, around uh, several roundabouts. I was not only worried about losing my sense of direction, but sort of, of hitting my head and tried to reach out to sort of steady myself by putting my hand on the seat in front. My hands were put back down to my sides. It didn't go on for all that long. Um, the blindfold was left on, but I was sort of um, escorted out of the car and led across a, a, a threshold into an office and prepared for another sort of round of questioning. Was there then the moment when you realised this was quite a shift from your hopes that it would all pan out, as you say, the general journalist's <laughs> faith that by some divine intervention, you know, you, you will be okay and on the plane and, and back home safely. Was there a sort of moment when it just felt more like a sort of recognition that this was serious? It felt serious. It was happening quite fast. So you don't have a huge amount of time to think. You don't have any agency. Um, so there's not that much point in trying to think about how you're going to get out of the situation or where this is leading. Um, It's not... Were um, you panicky? I don't think I panicked. Um, I mean, there's also, you know, every journalist has it as well. There's an element of this is not going according to plan, but also an an element of, you know, of curiosity. Where is this leading? What are they doing? These are, you know, one of the requests that I made before going out was, you know, to interview sort of senior security figures and you know this was a chance to meet some of them so i mean there's a kind of there is an element of curiosity about where it's all going i did at several occasions suggest that you know i had a right to well i should have a right to see a lawyer and uh, contact my embassy but it was made clear that if this process was going to end happily um i should cooperate and you know at every step there's a kind of you know there's a warning that if you don't cooperate, you end up in a Vien prison. They said, you know what happens there, don't you? Almost confirming the grim picture that uh, the world has of a Vien prison. It is Iran's largest prison. It's in the north of Tehran, up on the mountainside. 
It's a place which is completely cut off from the outside world. You don't get consular visits. You're held in solitary confinement. And Avin Prison is where Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British-Iranian dual citizen, is being held. Her fate must surely have been on your mind. Her fate was in my mind. The fate of you know, many other foreigners, some dual nationals, some not, was also in my mind. You know, It is not that uncommon for Iran to detain foreigners when they end up in the country. It is one of the tools that they use of exercising pressure against the West. And it's one that they've been exercising quite frequently in recent years. So, yes, I think one of the reasons actually even for telling this story is to remember those who are still being held, including Nazanin, and not to forget their plight. I was incredibly lucky. I was treated with, on the whole with velvet gloves. Um, many are being held in much worse conditions. Tell me what happened next. This kind of interrogation kind of initially went on all night, I was then taken out, put back into another car. Um, Before I got into the car, I was shown that um, the morning Qatari Airways flight was about to take off. It was a kind of a a twist. The the people were holding me were sort of, uh, it was done in in mockery. This is where you could have been. Were you angry about that? I mean, that seems like quite a cruel twist. They were teasing me. I mean, they wanted to make it clear that my fate was in their hands. Um, Did you know what they were trying to, to find out? Because it almost sounds like they said if you if you complied with us, you could be on a flight out, and if you don't, you won't. But did you know really what they were looking for, trying to find out from you? I didn't know. I think I had my suspicions. You know, I'd had to wait for three years for a, for a visa, which is longer than most. I had been a, a correspondent in Jerusalem. I was Jewish. I thought that this may have kind of rung alarm bells within within the, the system. But I was also surprised at how little the questioning seemed to focus on that. I mean, The Economist, I suppose, is a bit of an enigma to them. We don't get bylines. They don't know who writes what. But no, the questioning was all embracing. It didn't seem to focus on any particular point. And I think at the end of the day, I'm convinced that being British in Tehran is more of a liability than being Jewish. So we drove into town. Um, As we kind of got back towards Tehran, as we got to sort of the southern reaches of the city, the rush hour traffic, which is pretty intense in Tehran, uh, began to thicken. The driver returned to his sort of rapid pace, sort of weaving in and out of the traffic at an absurd pace. The blindfold came back on. We sort of drove down a, a steep ramp. And I was then escorted out of the car into another building, which turned out to be a detention center somewhere in southern Tehran. And it was then led to a cell. There was a blanket, um, an otherwise sort of bare cell. The guard pointed to. um, I went over to sort of pick up the blanket and the door was banged shut behind me. And there I was in quite a a large cell. Um, There was some some daylight coming through a, a, a window that was high up. Again, I don't think I was panicking, but I was trying to rationalize scenarios of what would happen, sort of how I presumed at some point um, my wife would realize that I wasn't coming home. Um, the paper would realize that I hadn't caught the flight and was coming back, that you know, alarm bells were probably ringing by now in London, and was just sort of trying to play out scenarios as to kind of what responses might be, how I was going to react. But again, even then, you sort of hold on to silver linings of this isn't going to go on for forever. Yeah, I was sort of, I was trying to, actually one of the comments that a colleague here had said before I left was um, sort of flippantly, but in hindsight, you know, with some sort of premonition of what might happen, you know, said you're going to come back with good Farsi, it might take you longer to get out than you expect. So <laughs> I imagine... It really is looking on the bright <laughs> side, isn't it? <laughs> um, that this was not, 
and even you know your mind is racing i suppose quite mm. quite fast by this stage you're trying to were you sleeping at all this by now we sort of having been held at about 7:30 in the evening it was probably about seven in the morning and yeah i kind of i picked up the blanket lay on the floor and fell asleep pretty pretty quickly <laughs> relationship with your guard, how you communicated, how much time you spent together. As it happened, I wasn't in the detention centre for all that long. In the afternoon, the doctor came back, sort of put me through another round of interrogation and said he was going to upgrade the conditions in which I was being held and took me to a safe house, which I think was probably the top floor of a hotel in town. And there I was kind of held with three other guards. And you know, over the next sort of three days that I was there, it was a remarkably intimate experience in some ways um, you know you're forced into a room with three other people and you don't have much for choice but to, you know you're not going to get anything out of resisting you're not going to get anything by putting their backs up and they were quite interesting in their own right you know this is my first chance I think by that stage I've been told that you know the people who are holding me were intelligence organization of the revolutionary guard the sort of praetorian guard of of the regime um and you know, this is my chance to kind of get to know some of the people who work for them. And they were surprisingly interesting and in some ways comical. And um, you know, we were all walking around in our T-shirts and, and pants. We were, there were times when we would exercise together, sort of our knees wrapped around each other while we did sit-ups. Um, there was one guard who wanted to dance and tried to encourage the rest of us to dance to, to pop music. We were in quite a close confinement and um, they were teaching me Farsi they made an appalling mess of the takeaways that they kept ordering. They got a watermelon and pips all over the place, and I was much older than the rest of them. I sort of, sort of mothered them, made them tea, went to the, yeah, there was a kitchenette. Um, there was one who was kind of initially quite gruff, and you know, through kind of Google Translate, we managed to sort of strike up some sort of theological uh, disputation, and it was... A theological disputation with people who were guarding you... <laughs> Yes, but they, um, sounds, but, but they were, shall we say, slightly risky? I didn't know. They weren't, I mean, they did not come across as kind of as ideologues. The one who, who I had this disputation with was more religious. He you know, did pray in the morning, the evening. and But uh, until that point, I don't really think the other guards had been. And so somehow, you know, they knew that he was, he was perhaps more pious than the rest of them. And they had to join in. But on the whole, no, they were not aggressive. And they were quite curious that my wife was from... India and they love Bollywood films, so we'd watch those. And I've heard this sort of from other people. I suppose since I've come out, I've I've tried to talk to, to to people who've been been held against their will. And you find this from a lot of people that you know that moment of captivity. And you know, again, mine was a really light experience. I can't remotely call myself a political prisoner in the way that you know real political prisoners can. But that moment of captivity is a really intense moment, and you build up very strong social bonds with people. It is a sort of highlight of their lives, and people like talking about it. It's a, you know, it's not called Stockholm syndrome for nothing. You recognise that description? Yes, I don't think it's inaccurate. And I don't think it's surprising, just because of the intensity of the relationships that, that you create when you're being held in close confinement with with other people. You write about a guard called Ali, and my impression—I mean, sometimes this is for journalistic reasons—that one focuses on a, a mm-hmm. character to take the reader through a very a complex and dense story, but I got the impression that you really did feel a, a, a came to feel a sort of affinity with him. Yeah, I mean, Ali did come to feature and played a very strong um, role in the rest of my stay in in Tehran. I think he was there right from the outset. In fact, at, at one point he said, "You should recognise me, don't you?" And I said, "No." 
And it turned out that he'd been following me on my previous um, visits to, to Iran as well. And I just hadn't realized it. Oh, <laughs> he said, and he was delighted that I didn't recognize him because he thought that, we, that we'd had sort of previous encounters. His um, tradecraft was... It was, was yeah, exactly. Was it was, You're smiling, so actually, for the, probably the thing the first time really in this interview, almost as if that, you know, you saw the kind of, I gave you some amusement, that sort of irony. He... Yeah, I mean, again, he was somebody who I ended up, you know, he was always present in interrogations sort of up until the point that I left Iran. He was kind of my direct handler, I suppose. And um, my fate depended on his decisions and his and his whims. Um, I think he found me quite intriguing as well. He felt that his English had improved. His English was pretty bad when we started and became much better by the end. And so by this stage, how long had you been held for? So, yeah, by now I'd been held for four or five days, Um the first night I was being interrogated in the airport. The second day I was in, in a detention center. After that point, I was taken for three days to a safe house, which I think was in, a, in an apartment hotel. And then again, I was moved once more. Blindfolds came on, taken to another hotel, which turned out to be a three-star hotel. I was checked in, uh, as you would normally do in a hotel. And uh, the doctor was waiting for me and sort of set the rules of the game for the rest of my stay in, in Tehran, which was that the mornings would be taken up with interrogation and questioning by Ali. For the rest of the time, I was free to move around uh, the city. I was not allowed to work, but I was given a phone. I was able to contact my uh, family, my colleagues at work. It was their phone. They could listen to every word. I was under continual surveillance. But essentially, it was a kind of a quantum leap in the conditions in which I'd been held and actually con conditions I'd ever been in in Tehran before because when Ali wasn't around, there was no minder. Uh, there was nobody to convert my, my every word. I presumed that I was being followed or that people were listening on a phone that I'd been given by the authorities. But you know, I felt that I was left to my own devices. And, and that sort of for me, felt like a unique experience in Tehran and one that I should try to make the most of. This strikes me as almost a kind of dreamlike situation. It, you are held there, you can't leave, but you're given relatively the freedom of the city that you'd gone to report on. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, this is a reporter's dream in... <laughs> That you, I didn't you, want to put it like that, but but now, <laughs> now, yes. You're heavily controlled when you're when you're in Iran on a press visa. Um, you have somebody who's monitoring everything you say. It's really hard to talk to people to get a sense of what people are thinking without the presence of the minder. And here I was, just sort of, as you said, sort of allowed to roam freely in Tehran. Um, you know, as a journalist, you get used to recording all your experiences. And I always have a notebook with me um, forever jotting things down. Um, but they'd taken them away from me and I, I never got them back. What they did give me was a phone. That phone had a camera, it had a recorder, and I took it with me everywhere, sort of obsessively recording the sights and sounds of Tehran. I wanted to take it all with me. It was sort of compensation for the notebooks that I lost. If, if there's one city where you want to, in a sense, where... where You'd, you'd want to be held. I think it would be Tehran. It's an absolutely fascinating place. Um, it's so vibrant. It's so sort of buzzing with fascinating conversation. With you know, there's been a splurge of cafes that have opened across town, which are just sort of packed with people. Sort of engaging. It's a very un uninhibited culture. People readily strike up conversations in in cafes. It's very easy to make friends. Um, there's sort of music everywhere you go. cinema is superb there are kind of almost is that what you were doing you were 
enriching, are almost, enriching your cultural life. I think so. I mean, I didn't. I had to find some way of occupying my time. There was absolutely no point um, moping in my hotel. Um, I thought this is an opportunity to discover a city I might never have again, and I wanted to make the most of it. Every evening I'd be out either going to a concert or going to a play. There are almost as many plays on in Tehran as there are in the West End of London. It's a, a buzzing place um, and one I wanted to make the most of. And what sense did you get of people's attitude towards the regime? You, you were out and about, and Farsi must be getting better day by day at this point, I suppose. Yeah, and people also speak very good English. It's not difficult to find people in cafes who speak English, and even if they don't, somehow you get by. I was, I think initially I was. I was the one who was doing the censoring. I was terrified of kind of what people might be listening to on my on my phone. I would sort of leave it at one end of the cafe and go and talk to people at the other end. It just seemed that every conversation I had would sort of end up in a anti-regime rant. It was <laughs> it was astonishing, and I was sort of terrified of the things that people were telling me and thought that this is just going to land me in. There was a fascination, but there was also a fear that that that, that this could be incriminating. How much of an impact? have the sanctions had and how visible was that to you as you were going around the city? It was very visible in my first week when I was in the hands of my minder. That was kind of pretty much what they wanted to show and to focus on. I think Iranians are extraordinarily resilient. This isn't the first time they've had to live under sanctions. Indeed, sort of pretty much the history of the Islamic Republic since 1979, there's been one form of sanctions and living in some either war economy or Cold War economy for the past 40 years. So Iranians know how to cope. There is a sense, however, that these sanctions are more biting than anything they've faced in the past. They're sort of excluded from the dollar economy. They can't. Can you see that? I mean, how does that manifest? It's clearly chastened, chastened times, but you know, Iranians are determined to make the most of the moment. And you know, they still go to concerts, and concerts are expensive. They still go to cafes, and they're not always, you know, certainly by Iranian standards, they're not cheap. Salaries have plummeted enormously. People are using up the last of their savings. Um, there are more people living rough on the streets. You do see kind of young girls hawking and um, in the metro selling sort of cheap clothing. Um, and again, that's sort of something which I think used to be kind of taboo in Iranian society. So it is it is tough times, but Iranians aren't allowing that to disrupt their joie de vivre. It's still a happy, functioning place. And the balance of animosity towards the West and animosity towards the regime in Iran, what, what was coming out of these conversations? There are sort of two worlds in, in Iran. No? There's a kind of, there's a virtual reality that you see on television, which is a kind of society which is controlled by clerics, which is deeply religious, um, very conservative, respectful of the authorities, and which deeply dislikes the West. Uh, and then there's a real world of Tehran, which is sort of almost diametrically opposed to all of those things. It feels very cosmopolitan, very engaged with the West. Very nostalgic for a, for a past where there were ties with the West, almost kind of romantically nostalgic over the ties that there used to be uh, with the West. And which, you know, this is at a time where kind of, of heightened tensions with Britain over the the seizure of this tanker, and at a time where the drums of war seem to be beating in, in official discourse. How much of it this surprised you as you wandered about? 
I loved it. I mean, I, yeah, this, was, this wasn't my first trip to Tehran. I had sort of picked up some of this before. But just to see just how secular a place it is, how kind of probably the least religious place you'll find in the Middle East. You don't see clerics in the street. You don't hear calls to prayer. You, people don't go to the mosque on, on Fridays. It feels a very anti-religious place because kind of the way that people express their animosity towards the state is through being anti-religious. But there are particular times of year, aren't there, when the religious life takes over from the secular. I think you experience some of that. Yeah, all that changes for one month a year. It's the holy month of Muharram culminating on the 10th day of Muharram Ashura, which is the anniversary of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein Ibn Ali, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson. A very modern city bursts into colour with kind of drapes and flags and there are these huge drums and processions, men marching through the streets. The whole city seems to be commemorating Imam Hussein. It's a a pageant, it's a passion, it's a, it's a moment of very high emotion. Part of the ritual is actually for the devout to weep during the prayers for Ali. <laughs> Grown men beating their chests and weeping and sometimes beating their heads as well. It's almost as if people are trying to recover a religion which they feel is authentic, which is not state-controlled, which is a connection to the past, and it was absolutely fascinating to see. There's another angle to this. You're Jewish yourself. How important has your faith been to you in the past, and how important was it as you were going through this ordeal? I suppose at one level there was a kind of... I had, you know, I wanted to find some some solace. I wanted to find a community that I could latch onto. But again, there was a kind of, and I was never quite sure what the boundaries were. You know, Pretty much whenever I travel around the Middle East, I'm fascinated by the Jewish life that used to live across the Muslim world. You know, Jews were part and parcel of, of Islam from its inception. And because of the Arab-Israeli conflict, that's a side of, of, of the Middle East which has been largely eliminated. You know, you go to Every Muslim capital in in the Middle East, and you'll find there is you know there's next to no Jewish life left. You have empty quarters, or all that survives is a memory. There's no living community. And Tehran, I knew, was was an exception to that. It's the largest Jewish community anywhere in the Muslim world. So how and many practicing Jews in Tehran? There are probably now about eight to nine thousand. Radically reduced, isn't it? Since uh, since, since the Shah's time, yeah. I mean, that's probably down to ten percent, maybe twelve percent of what it of what it was, but it's it's still by far and away the largest Jewish community anywhere in, in the Muslim world. And it's a it's a thriving community. You know, it's really hard to find a it's it's a place which is still renewing. There are births and weddings and um And they live and, safely in Tehran? Yeah, if you ask Jews in Tehran, they say they're safer in, in, in Tehran than they are in, in Paris, London or New York. I mean, you know, and probably statistically they they are because of the degree of, of, of the heavy hand of security. How did you find your way into the community? I must have been quite surprised to find you dropping in. I kind of knew roughly where it was. Um, Ali had been singing the praises of um, ophthalmologists and opticians in, in Tehran, and it happened to be in the same place that the Jewish community um, was concentrated. And so I sort of made a habit of going to look for a new pair of glasses on Friday nights. And, and at one point, just decided I kind of I saw a light behind a... Uh, behind a wall and sort of walked in and there was a, the Ark, the Scrolls, the Ten Commandments in, in Hebrew, menorahs. Um, it was a, a community which was buzzing with, with life and I, can, I suppose at that point, having crossed the Rubicon once, I then went sort of back again and was befriended by a man called 
Daniel, who kept inviting me to morning and evening prayers. And you know, I'm not particularly observant, but found myself sort of drawn into a community which, well, outside Israel, this is the last sort of vestige of a world which is very different from the Judaism of, of the West. Um, you know, Judaism in the West has kind of gone through, in some ways, a, it's gone through horrific experiences of and um, is you know, still in some ways suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from from the Holocaust. It's a kind of it's an uh, introspective community, often um, very nervous of the outside world. And this was a community which was incredibly open and inclusive, accepting. Um, and you know, I you know, was um, showered with the, with invitations to, to to go to people's homes. It was a free pass into a community which sort of adopted me for a time. That must have been very en- enriching, particularly given the, the sort of emotional impoverishment of being separated from, from your family, your work, your There family. was. I mean, I was still, I think it, the condition that I was in and the conditions that those who were outside trying to get me out thought I was in were kind of, were were not, there was a there was quite a gap be- between them. I mean, I think when you're here and you're, you know, my, my wife, my colleagues went through enormous anguish about what I was, was suffering. Um, and for much of the time, I didn't really feel I was suffering at all. I was like a sort of, yeah, it was like sort of looking through a keyhole and seeing a world beyond. And I sort of was trying to get into that world. I was fascinated by it. And every time I'd get a call, part of me was very grateful that there were people outside who cared for me and were doing their utmost for me. But part of it also felt as if I was being sort of hauled back from, from discovering more of this world. The promise of release was dangled more than once. When did you realize you weren't going to be detained for much longer and how long into this involuntary stay was it there were repeated false false alarms um, the doctor at one point said i think three weeks in had assured me that uh, a case had been closed and uh, gave me a date of three or four days uh, in the future which when i'd be um, free to leave the country and in the meantime, he would process my exit visa, and uh, he said it would be the following Tuesday. Uh, everybody in L- London was was delighted, but the Tuesday came and went, and the doctor disappeared as well. And for a time, I sort of just left, sort of dangling in the hotel. There were no calls from um, Ali or uh, any of his uh, any of the other people working with him. And when I sort of texted Ali, there would be no response. And if there was a response, he would sort of text back his favourite phrase, "Please wait." It was clear that I think by this stage that the authorities had decided that you know, any suspicion they had was unfounded about me. I felt in limbo and days had dragged to weeks. Um, the initial kind of promise of release after three weeks had been and gone. The interrogations began again, this time more more threateningly, I think, that they were that it looked as if they were trying to find a pretext to put me on trial. A trial in Tehran is not this would not have been a fair trial. This would have been a, you know, with the purpose of sentencing me to, to months, if not years, in prison. So there's a real prospect that my kind of relative liberty in, in Tehran was going to end. Instead of meeting Ali in, in the car, we, I had, used to have to go to an interrogation centre. And just as I was about to head back into an interrogation centre, I got a message from Ali saying, uh, don't go in. And I thought at that point something had, something had changed. It was hard to pinpoint exactly what, but... I did feel that they were having second thoughts about whether they really wanted to go through with this process and felt they were reconsidering. And several more days lapsed. I continued to wait. And then it was Tuesday morning and a text arrived just as I finished breakfast. 
saying, go to the immigration office, your exit visa is waiting. It looked as if the ordeal was about to end, not without a few more hiccups, which in hindsight seem farcical. The address he gave me of the immigration office was not in the place where he said it would be. Um, when I finally found it, I was told that that the person who had sponsored me had to issue a letter of approval before an exit visa could be granted. My sponsors happened to be a Ministry of Guidance. Now, people had been holding me, had been revolutionary guards. They were a sort of rival branch of um, the state to the government. Um, so I kind of messaged Ali saying what to do and again came back the response, please wait. You can check out any time you like, <laughs> no, you can exactly. never leave. And eventually that hurdle was crossed. Then there was another one, which was that um, in order to get the exit visa, I, somebody had to pay for the fine for overstaying and nobody wanted to take responsibility for overstaying. It was a kind of $200 fine. Ali insisted that he wanted to have nothing to do with it and that it was the responsibility of the, the government. The government said that it was, you know, this is just a sign of how, how in, inhospitable the guards were and they weren't going to pay. I should have had $200 on me, but my next tranche hadn't yet arrived. So there was a, <laughs> there was a real prospect that I was going to be staying on in Iran for want of $200. It's um, cheeky to charge you for staying on, really, <laughs> isn't it, in the circumstances? Yeah, I think this is just and nobody wanted to have anything in writing that they might formally hold them to account. Mm. Luckily, yeah, so the 11th hour, the money did come through from the paper in London and in the nip of time, got the money, got the stamp and a few hours later, got on a plane. What was it like saying goodbye to your captors after all those weeks? Ali, of course, was waiting for me um, in the departure lounge. All the time I'd been asking for my laptop back and my notebooks and my phones and he promised he would bring them back. Um, he almost kept his word. He was waiting there with, with my laptop, although it had been completely wiped. He was waiting there with my phones. I got them both back, but they'd been wiped as well. And um, he told me all along what a sort of fan of Arsenal he was and, and said that he, would, he hoped he would see me soon, if not in an Arsenal match, um, maybe somewhere in, elsewhere in Europe or in Iraq. But he also asked me to take a photo of an Arsenal football match and send it to him and hope that we would keep in touch and that I might come back to Iran. I finally boarded that Qatar Airways flight at whatever it was, 10.30 in the evening and um, headed back to London. I think freedom is a really difficult term to define. Um, there's a kind of, of, co of, course I'm, of course I'm free in London, um, but you know, you have obligations, you have chores, you have bonds, you have family ties, you have kind of work ties, you have deadlines, you have, you know, in many ways, your life is quite constrained. And there's a part of me, I think, which will always look back on Tehran and sort of captivity in Tehran as being a remarkable moment of, of liberation where I didn't have de deadlines, didn't have chores, was sort of in an uninhibited world in many ways, and just discovering a side of life which was very exciting. Um, meeting people who were incredible, going out every night, sometimes to parties, sometimes to weddings, to concerts. This sort of kaleidoscope of, of a kind of fun-loving people um, who are living in really hardened times, both because of the people who are ruling over them and because of the sanctions that, that are imposed upon them from outside, but somehow scraping through, and not just scraping through, but really living life to its full. I suppose there's, a, there's an element of any oppressive regime where you don't know what tomorrow brings. You know? And while I was in Tehran, I didn't know what tomorrow 
was going to bring. I didn't know whether I really was going to end up in a Wien prison or whether I was going to get out. And I wanted to have that sense of, you know, live life to the full, try and make the most of it while you're there and li live in the moment. Um, and there's this kind of strange sense of sort of almost liberation and captivity. It was that sort of Alice in Wonderland world, which I'm going to look back on and think that I had a taste of it and will always want to go back. Would you try to go back? I'm not sure the decision is going to be mine. If it was, I'd go back tomorrow. Nicholas, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Anne. Nicholas Pelham, The Economist's Middle East correspondent. To read Trapped in Tehran in 1843 magazine, subscribe at economist.com slash 1843 offer. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.